of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Of all of Jesus' miracles, probably my favorite is his turning the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. But while all of his miracles, curing the sick, raising the dead, walking on water, to name but a few, are indeed awe-inspiring, it is his multiplication of the loaves and fishes that I found most fascinating. I can wrap my head around Jesus' transforming water into wine. Water is made up of oxygen and hydrogen atoms, and everything is made up of the same basic building blocks of subatomic particles. Add some neutrons, protons, and electrons, and you get a carbon atom. Mix carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen atoms all together, and you have the material to make ethanol. Sure, there are all the other kinds of molecules that make up the flavor of wine. There are between 800 and 1,000 different compounds in wine that give it its unique characteristics. But they are still made up of the same basic components, protons, neutrons, and electrons. The same seems to be true when Jesus cures the sick. He could have healed someone in a similar process to how medicine does it. Perhaps he eliminated the diseased cells, or tweaked the DNA strands, or stimulated the body's own autoimmune response. It seems plausible that his raising of the dead is something similar, restarting someone's heart, restoring their soul, whatever. Ordinary isn't the word, but they all make sense. Even walking on water is easy for me to accept. Perhaps even the easiest is I grew up reading Superman comics. So the idea that someone could alter the effects of gravity gives me little pause. On the other hand, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes is truly amazing to me. Did Jesus clone them? Did he copy and paste the original seven loaves and a few fishes? Are they exact copies, or are they completely new ones? If new, was the matter that made up the new loaves and fishes sucked out of the air around them to make them? Or did he grab them from somewhere else? Like was a fishmonger at a stall, looked down and saw a few less fish on the table? Or did he create them ex nihilo, from nothing? Now science tells us that all the energy slash matter that will ever exist came into existence with the Big Bang. All the stuff of the universe that will ever be was here in an instant. Nothing more, nothing less. So does that mean there was a certain amount of energy and matter in the universe before Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes, and then there was a different amount after? There was an amount of stuff equal to a number, let's call it X, and then from that time and forever after, there's X plus a certain number of loaves and fishes. Of course, following this train of thought can lead one to ponder things like Jesus' ascension. And since he took his body with him to heaven, it would mean there's X plus loaves and fishes minus Jesus. Of course, we have to subtract Elijah, maybe Mary and Enoch. Now, as fascinating as all that may be, is such speculation useful? Sure, it can help to pad out the runtime of a homily, but is it spiritually useful? That is one of the great temptations that countless theologians have fallen into throughout history, arguing over how many angels will fit on the head of a pin and all that. Even Thomas Aquinas, whom I adore, was not above finding himself lost in the weeds, arguing that dogs don't get to go to heaven and speculating whether each individual angel constitutes its own species, a separate species for each individual angel, which is probably why after a mystical experience and completely stopping work on his magnum opus, the Summa Theologiae, he is reported to have said, all that I have written seems to me like straw compared to what has now been revealed to me. What then are we to take away from the multiplication of the loaves and fishes? 
One thing important to remember is that Jesus didn't provide them with a lavish feast, conjuring an overabundance of delicacies like the Great Hall in Hogwarts. No, he satiated their hunger. Oh, and they were good and hungry. The crowd had been with Jesus three days, three whole days. I can barely go without food for three hours before Mass, which is probably apparent. But these people followed and stuck with him for three days without food. Now, I'm sure it tasted great, far better than a filet of fish and definitely better than a red lobster. But I'm pretty sure it wasn't some transcendent dining experience either. The fish that Jesus multiplied were probably dried or salted. And the bread wasn't a, a tasty brioche bun or anything like that, but hearty, sturdy stuff. The loaves and fishes had been in someone's pack for three days. This food satisfied the people's physical hunger. Probably wasn't the greatest thing they ever ate, but neither did they have to choke it down like a protein bar. But as Jesus says in John's Gospel, while this food keeps the body functioning, it will still succumb to death. Instead, Jesus offers himself as the bread of life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, he says. It was more than a hard saying for these people. For most, it was repulsive. The visceral reaction of the words of Jesus went beyond mere revulsion at the idea of cannibalism. God's chosen people were forbidden from ingesting blood because blood was the life. Not merely the life of the creature, but in a sense, life itself. This thing, call it life or existence or being or what have you, was the animating force, the fire which stokes all life. In a way, the prohibition against ingesting any blood was to show that this thing called life was shared. In a way, my life, your life, the life of a sheep or goat are all the same life. The crowds that had once been willing to go without food for days to travel with him, who had experienced so many miracles, abandoned him. Jesus does not beg them to stay. He doesn't offer to explain away his statement as a metaphor. He doesn't change his message to make it more palatable. He doesn't force. He doesn't cajole. He allows them to go. But that is all in the future. For now, even though he knows that they will leave, he still feeds them. As amazing as this miracle is, we ought not be jealous of those who ate that day because we partake in a far more amazing miracle. In the Eucharist, we eat the flesh and drink the blood of the one who is the bread of life. In this miracle, Jesus offers himself not just for us, but to us. At Mount Sinai, God's covenant was sealed with blood. Moses sprinkled the altar and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. The sprinkling of the blood on the altar became part of what is known as the communion sacrifice. What Jesus reveals in his sacrifice for us on the cross is that the blood offered on the altars, going all the way back, were not just pledging of our own lives and well-being, but that God himself pledging himself, who is life itself. This meal that we share with him and with each other satisfies that deep and aching hunger within us that merely earthly substances like loaves and fishes and even wine can never satisfy. Yet the things of this world do not cease to have their function. We can go without the earthly things in short bursts, but then we must take care of our earthly needs so that we can partake in the spiritual ones. Jesus fed the crowds and filled their bellies so that their souls could be filled. But this miracle which we receive shows us that the things of this world need to take their proper place in our lives. We have to ensure that they do not become idols, 
whether they be the worship of wealth, the worship of nature, or the worship of ourselves. But we have to remember that they are not unimportant either. We are spiritual beings, but we are also creatures of flesh and blood. We are not souls trapped in bodies waiting to be set free, but we instead are bodies gifted with souls, now freed from the bondage of death and newness of life in Christ. That brings us to another miracle we are privileged to be a part of. The God who created the heaven and earth, the God who became flesh and died for our sins, wants to talk with us. He wants to give us gifts and love and peace and joy. He wants us to know him. As interesting and as, interesting as I might find the what's and wherefores of the multiplication of loaves and fishes, God finds infinitely more interest in me as a person, just as he does in you. If there is one place where the satisfactions of our earthly appetites and our spiritual ones point and direct us toward, it is our prayer. We eat both to fill our souls and bodies, to live life in the flesh and the new life in the spirit, but the purpose is to be united with God, which is just another name for prayer. In prayer, we seek the answer to our earthly needs as well as those of others, so that we can more fully participate in the miracles of our new lives. We pray so that our bellies are filled, whether that means literally or figuratively. When we pray for others' needs, the ultimate goal is the growth of their relationship with God. But just as in today's gospel, Jesus took compassion on the immediate needs of the people. So too our prayers for others shouldn't get bogged down in results. Whether someone's cured of an ailment or relief from some besetting issue, ultimately closer to Christ is not within our power. What is within our power is to pray for others because they are the children of God. Prayer is the starting point of our own earthly endeavors for others. Whether the alms that we give or help we offer will fix things isn't our concern. What is of our concern is that someone needs that which we have to give. But we can only truly give when our relationship with God is well-ordered. And that ordering occurs in and through prayer. Whether earthly desires are answered by miraculous means or by spiritual growth, all our prayers are answered, all of them, just not always in the way we hope for. The answer is to remain steadfast in our faith, for it is through faith in Christ that we realize the truth of the miracles that we have been privileged to partake in. Whether our meager offerings, be they loaves and fishes, or our prayers, are multiplied and produced in overabundance filling and sustaining our new lives in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.